Good afternoon, everyone. Have you ever experienced a miracle? You might ask, what is a miracle? A miracle may be defined as an event brought about by the intervention of a supernatural power, usually contravening the expected or ordinary course of events. For our purposes, a miracle is the intervention of God to guide events towards the end desired by Him. Miracles may be more or less obvious to human perception, or they may be hidden to one degree or another from human perception. Jesus Christ, for example, as a human being, was conceived by a miracle in the womb of a Jewish woman named Mary. As we read in Matthew 1 and verse 18, Matthew 1 verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So, she was a virgin who had become pregnant. And it was obvious after a while that Mary was pregnant. And in any conception of a new life, in a sense, there is a miracle, but this was no ordinary conception. This was an extraordinary miracle, but to Joseph, Mary's husband, the nature of the miracle did not become evident until a special revelation by God. As we read in Matthew 1 and verse 19, Matthew 1 verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while she thought about these things, or while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So this is an example of how a miracle was wrought and was not necessarily obvious at first at least, and yet it was a miracle. In addition to this particular example, in the Bible are recorded many miracles involving the direct intervention of God. God worked miracles, for example, to judge the gods of Egypt. As the Israelites were leaving Egypt, we're told, in Numbers 33 and verse 4, Numbers 33 and verse 4, also on their gods, that is the gods of Egypt, the Lord had executed judgments. And there were a number of miracles involved in that. Among the 
these miracles was the judgment that led to the deaths of the firstborn of Egypt on the night of the Passover as is mentioned in Exodus 12 and verse 12 along with other miracles. And as the Israelites fled from Egypt Pharaoh and his army pursued them. Having agreed to let them go he changed his mind and Pharaoh and his army pursued the Israelites as they were leaving. And so we read in Exodus 14, beginning with verse 9. Exodus 14, verse 9. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hiroth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone? that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He shall accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, but it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were walled to them on their right hand and on their, on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So God intervened to fight the enemy of Israel and defeat them. And this was a miracle that was so dramatic that it should have been easily recognized as a miracle to anyone who witnessed it. Even at the time, the hard-headed Israelites were impressed by what God had done for them. Unfortunately, that impression for most of them was short-lived. For it says in Nehemiah 9 and verse 17, Nehemiah 9 and verse 17 they, that is Israel, refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. So it wasn't too long after this incident where God had destroyed the army of Pharaoh by a fantastic miracle that the people were of a mindset to return to Egypt and their slavery because they had lost faith in God. Over the years, I've asked for anointing at one time or another when I've been sick, and eventually I recovered from those sicknesses. But in most cases, there was no immediate dramatic healing as in the case of many of the healings that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Now I'm not saying there was no miracle performed in any of these cases because perhaps everyday miracles are part of any healing. But in one case I had become more or less disabled by a severe backache at the Feast of Tabernacles one year. I was scheduled to speak on a particular day, but the pain was so severe I could not stand up straight. I went to be anointed and prayed for by a minister on anointing duty that morning. As he was praying for me and anointing me, during the, during the prayer itself, I felt a distinct warming sensation in the locus where the pain was centered in my back, like one might feel from a hot pad or a bottle of heated water. When the prayer was over, I could stand up straight without pain, although my back remained stiffer than usual for a day or two. And based on the evidence, I believe that was a definite miracle that God chose to perform 
to heal me instantaneously, even as the minister was praying and for me and anointing me with oil. In other cases involving family members, particularly my children, it seemed that God intervened to resolve serious and sometimes life-threatening health issues, although medical personnel were also involved in several of these situations. In one case, doctors told my wife and me that our infant child would not live because of a problem with his heart. Several weeks later and after much prayer, the child was still alive and after another examination, we were told there was nothing wrong with the child's heart. This is only one of several incidents where doctors had told us our children were threatened with serious disabilities, but all of these cases were resolved favorably after prayer and anointing. In a dramatic case that I'm aware of, the wife of a member of a church congregation I was serving was suffering from stage 4 cancer. Her doctor told her her condition would be fatal. She was not a church member and had resisted her husband's efforts to persuade her to ask for prayer and anointing by a, a minister of the church that said a member of, of the, the uh, congregation was suffering. It was actually, uh, no, I did say it was his wife. Uh, he was a member, but she was not. But uh, she resisted efforts to, uh, for him to ask for prayer and anointing by a minister of the church for her. Finally, in desperation, she agreed to let him ask for anointing and prayer, and she was anointed. A few days after she was anointed, she was examined, and the physicians could find no sign of the cancer. I was told by her husband that her doctor reviewed the files in her case, and the doctor told her husband that he regarded her healing as a miracle. Last time I saw her, several years later, she was still alive and apparently healthy. Now some may say, I've never experienced anything like a miracle as you're describing. And perhaps not. But in fact, if you are alive today, living in relative freedom and prosperity in the United States or any number of other countries, you have been blessed by many miracles. Even though you may not be aware of it, besides life itself, which is a miracle. Jacob, or Israel, had prophesied of the descendants of the tribe of Joseph. Joseph was one of his sons. And he prophesied of the descendants of the tribe of Joseph, which consisted of the descendants of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, we read this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49, beginning with verse 22. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. 
from there is the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors or uh, could be blessings of my descendants up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Now this prophecy, as it tells us in Genesis 49 verse 1, was for the latter days. It was for the period preceding the end of this age and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was to be fulfilled in the latter days. A similar prophecy was uttered by Moses before his death concerning the people who were descended from Joseph. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 13 Deuteronomy 33 and verse 13 of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns are like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Now there were no conditions placed on these blessings. These were blessings that God had given as a part of the inheritance promised to the people of Joseph as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to be granted these blessings in the latter days. And in these prophecies is an explicit promise that God would inter intervene for the descendants of Joseph to help them in struggling against their enemies. Without going into detail, there are a number of reasons to conclude that Great Britain and the other British descended nations are representative of Ephraim in the latter days and the United States is representative of Manasseh. These two nations, or these, you might say, uh, Britain has evolved into several independent nations. The, the British uh, people have developed among their descendants several nations, but we'll call them for our purposes two nations two peoples related by blood, closely related by blood, have dominated the world in terms of military strength and economic and cultural influence for the past 200 plus years.
And they have been at odds with various enemies throughout most, if not all, of that period. In World War II, the world was threatened with domination by the Axis powers, including primarily Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan. For a while after the fall of France in June 1940, when the Germans defeated the French army and took France out of the war for the most part, from that point in June 1940 until the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941, Great Britain was alone in actively fighting the Axis powers. Britain, the British leaders were adamantly opposed to the Nazi regime and everything that it stood for. Its brutality, its evil. And they alone were actively fighting the, the Axis powers. In spite of the fact that Britain's army had come close to being exterminated in France after Germany's attack in 1940. But the British Army survived in what has often been referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. This was only one of a number of episodes in the war where events seemed to turn in the favor of Britain and her allies, which included the United States after the Japanese attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. Even before that, however, the United States had begun helping Britain by supplying her with war materials and helping safeguard ocean-going convoys. In the remainder of this sermon, I want to discuss some of the miracles of World War II as an illustration of how God has kept the promises that we read about earlier. And... These miracles have directly affected your life, even though you may not, not have ever thought of it in that way. I think it's safe to say that relatively few people alive today understand how perilously close to defeat Britain and her allies were at various times during World War II, especially early in the war. On the heels of Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland, Britain declared war on Germany on September 3, 1939. Germany quickly overran and defeated Poland. And by the way, the reason that Britain had declared war is because she had uh, made an agreement with Poland that she would come to their defense if they were attacked by Germany. Uh, and Germany quickly overran and defeated Poland after the attack. France, with what seemed like on paper the world's most powerful army at the time, could have immediately attacked Germany from the west 
and the German defenses were weak in the west because most of their army was to the east attacking Poland at the time. The French could have attacked Germany from the west but will, lacked the will to act decisively. At the time, the British army was far from being prepared for, for war. It had only two fully trained divisions which were immediately sent to France along with two other reserve divisions sent shortly thereafter. The British Expeditionary Force, as it was called, consisted of about 160,000 men, which included a large number of support troops with four combat divisions. And these British divisions were strung out along a thin defensive line near the Belgian border, of, with in, in, inside France, but near the Belgian border. The French, although strong on paper, were actually less prepared for war in some ways than Britain. The French army was poorly led, it was apathetic, and the French were paralyzed by a defensive mindset. Adolf Hitler wanted to attack France across the Belgian frontier immediately after the defeat of Poland, which took only a few weeks. Despite his general's objections, Hitler set the date of November 12, 1939 for an attack against France and the British Expeditionary Force. Had the attack occurred at that time, the results would likely have been fatal for the British army and may well have led to the early defeat of Britain unprepared as she was for war. As happened at several critical junctures during the war, however, the weather intervened. From a book called The Turn of the Tide by Arthur Bryant, it is stated, Quote, the weather saved the British Army, which at that time had only half the strength it was to attain by the spring. The meteorological report on November 7th was so alarming that the offensive was postponed, and though orders for it continued on a day-by-day -day basis until the middle of January, the weather never recovered for long enough to make it possible to use the Luftwaffe which is a, what the German Air Force was called. End quote. So the weather that particular fall and winter was extraordinarily wet and cold, preventing the Germans from launching their attack. Going on with Quoting this uh, source, it says, Thus, the extremity of that bitter winter alone, the extremity of that bitter winter alone, prevented Hitler from launching against an ill equipped and ill prepared Anglo French army on the borders of France and Belgium, the midwinter offensive. But for this, Guderian's armor and Goring's bombers might have reached the channel in the Belgian and Dutch airfields nine months before the Battle of Britain and when fighter command was still nearly 20 squadrons short of the force that was to save England in, in 1940. 
So the delay allowed Britain to have time to increase its air force, which was critical to its survival later on, as we will see. Now, Lord Gort was the commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force until its retreat across the English Channel in the spring of 1940. And he was asked, quote, whether had the Germans attacked in November 1939, his troops and the French would have been better able to withstand them than in May 1940. His reply was that they would have been far less so. Far less so. End quote. In other words, they would have been much more easily defeated in the fall of 1939 than they were in the spring of 1940. Finally, after revising their attack plan, the Germans did launch their attack on May 10th, 1940. They quickly penetrated the French defenses in the Ardennes area and outflanked the French army and the British Expeditionary Force. And the BEF, short for British Expeditionary Force, was forced to retreat to the coast in the area of Dunkirk on the coast of France. German panzer armies were to the north and to the south of the BEF, but Hitler ordered them to halt just as they were poised to attack and destroy the British force. Quoting a book called The Ascent to Greatness by Raymond F. McNair. It says of this situation, quote, there was nothing to stop them from closing the jaws of their gigantic trap of steel and fire. Nothing to prevent them from cutting the Allies off from Dunkirk. Had they closed their trap, evacuation of the Allied expeditionary forces would have been impossible. Hitler ordered Dunkirk is to be left to the Luftwaffe. Then another strange incident occurred as the German general sat helplessly near Dunkirk, ostensibly waiting for Goring's Luftwaffe to destroy their enemy. A suffocating fog closed in. The English Channel became calm, so calm that the smallest boats could sail on it without risk of being capsized. End quote. So once again, the weather saved the British Army. First of all, a fog closed in, which hindered the German Air Force from completely annihilating the exposed troops and boats and ships. And also, the English Channel, which is usually quite uh, choppy and... Uh, would usually swamp any small vessels, became so calm that the smallest of boats could sail on it. Now, British authorities at the time hoped perhaps 30,000 uh, 30, of the 400,000 Allied soldiers bottled up at Dunkirk could be evacuated, but Hitler's orders and the weather allowed a flotilla of nearly 1,000 vessels of all sizes and descriptions, even rowboats, to evacuate 366,000 men from France in the period May 26 to June 4, 1940. 224,000 of the evacuees, evacuees were British, effectively saving the British Army from destruction. <laughs> 
Later, Alan Brooke, a Corps commander of the BEF and later chief of the British Imperial General Staff, commented, quote, As I look back on those last days before Dunkirk, I still marvel at the fortune we had, and I shall always remain convinced that had it not been for the guiding hand of an almighty providence, the BEF would never have left the shores of France. Repeatedly, throughout the war, I realized the influence of this same guiding hand, this same superhuman power, watching and guiding the destiny of humanity. Had the BEF not returned to this country, it is hard to see how the army could have recovered from this blow. The reconstitution of our land forces would have been so delayed as to endanger the whole course of the war. So here was the highest, the man who became the highest ranking officer in the British army as the chief of the Imperial General Staff said, and by his own admission, he said, says elsewhere that he was really not a very religious man. But uh, he became convinced that the salvation of his army was due to the Almighty. And that throughout the war, he witnessed that same superhuman power intervening on behalf of the British and their allies. Brick went on to comment that the loss of the officers weren't officers and non-commissioned officers had the army not been evacuated successfully would have been irreparable as they were instrumental in training and shaping new units as the army expanded after the fall of France. He wrote, quote, Time and again throughout the years of the war, I thanked God for the safe return of the bulk of the personnel of the BEF, end quote. Following the defeat of France, Germany attacked Britain by air. The main aim was to destroy the British Air Force in preparation for a planned invasion of Britain. Even though the British managed to destroy more German planes than they lost, the Germans by September 1940 had almost reached the point of reducing the British Air Force to the point where they would be unable to resist further. But on September 7th, Hitler changed the emphasis of the attack from that of destroying the British Air Force to that of bombing London and other British cities. And so we read again from Ascent to Greatness this comment, quote, if the German Luftwaffe had continued to press its attacks against British airfields and communications, it would no doubt have soon succeeded in knocking out the RAF. Britain would have been, would, th would have then been a sitting duck, unable to defend herself effectively against the screaming Stuka dive bombers and against the whole array of German fighters and bombers. Hitler could have then ordered Operation Sea Lion, which is a, a code for the invasion of Britain, to be put into effect. Britain would probably not have lasted one month against a hail of steel and fire raining down her, upon her comparatively ill-equipped and helpless army. The British would have gone down to certain defeat. End of quote. But actually the quote goes on. Uh, 
as it was, the British Air Force survived and gained enough strength uh, to cause Hitler to call off Operation Sea Lion. Actually, this is not a quote. This is these are my words. Uh, Sir Hugh Dowding, Britain's chief air marshal, stated the reason that he thought Britain won the Battle of Britain, as this air war was called. He said, this is the chief of the British Air Force, quote, I say with absolute conviction that I can trace the intervention of God not only in the battle itself but in the events which led up to it and that if it had not been for this intervention the battle would have been joined in conditions which humanly speaking would have rendered victory impossible, end quote. After failing to defeat the British Air Force, Hitler turned his attention to planning an invasion of the Soviet Union, which, with which he had earlier signed a non-aggression treaty. The date of the invasion was delayed, however, by an attack on Greece by the Italian army, which was humiliated by the Greeks. Britain intervened on the side of Greece, and Hitler decided to invade Greece to protect his southern flank. As a result of the invasion of the Soviet of of, the, of, of this invasion of Greece, the invasion of the Soviet Union did not, did not begin until several weeks later than originally intended. And in ascent to greatness, this is this comment quote: "This delay may have later proved decisive in Germany's defeat by the hands of the Russians." End quote. On June 22, 1941, 250 German divisions attacked the Soviet Union on a wide front. The Germans were confident of defeating the Russian armies before winter, so no winter clothing or provisions were prepared. By the end of September, the Soviets had lost 2.5 million men, 18,000 tanks, 22,000 guns, and 14,000 planes. And the Nazis seemed on their way to victory. As the Nazi columns were approaching Moscow in mid-October, however, once again the weather intervened. The autumn rains, which usually start in mid-November, began to fall a month early, bogging down German equipment and slowing down their armies. Quoting again from Ascent to Greatness, before October was over, the Nazi spearhead aimed at the Russian capital had almost ground to a mud-mired halt. Even though the danger was far from over, Moscow had won a brief but badly needed respite in which to get its breath and prepare for the final expected German onslaught. Then, even worse, shortly after being slowed down by mud, the bitterest Russian winter in a hundred years settled down over Russia, freezing the Nazi war machine in its tracks. This total immobilization of the Nazi armored divisions brought their advance to a halt. General Winter had come to Russia with a vengeance. Before long, Nazi troops were fighting in sub-zero weather, sometimes 30 or 40 degrees below zero. End quote. Now the Germans had no winter clothing. Their machines had no winter lubricants. And their weapons froze. 
And again, quoting from Ascent to Greatness, quote, more German soldiers died or were disabled as a direct result of the bitterly cold weather than were killed or wounded by the Russian army, end quote. So Moscow was saved as a result of the weather and the Russian army held in reserve, equi reserve equipped for winter fighting then attacked the stalled Germans, forcing a retreat. Now the war was far from over, but the Battle of Moscow was one of the turning point, points of the war. Quoting again from Ascent to Greatness, had Hitler and the Nazis not been so haughty, had they not arrogantly assumed they would have their major Russian military objectives in the bag before winter set in, and had they issued the German soldiers warm winter clothing, the war might have gone differently. End quote. These are just a few of many incidents involving the weather and other unexpected or inexplicable happenings that turned to the war in favor of the British and Americans and their wartime allies. In fact, a sizable book could be written detailing these various incidents. Now there's no doubt the Allies suffered much, were severely grieved by their enemies, expended tremendous effort, and exhibited unbending re resolve in the fight against their enemies in World War II. But their enemies were also skilled, powerful, and determined. What made the difference in the outcome? It's not difficult to believe that the difference was God's intervention in ways large and small that empowered Joseph's descendants and their allies to win the final victory. The Nazi and Imperial Japan regime, regimes were two of the most brutal and violent regimes in history. They murdered and enslaved tens of millions of people and they sought to conquer the world. What would your life have been like if they had been victorious? Would you have even had a life? What would the world have been like in the past 80 years if the Nazis and Imperial Japan had won the war? These are questions worth thinking about. These miracles of God has affected every one of our lives, whether we realize it or not. Had the, the uh, enemies of Britain and the United States won, it would be a different world by far. But they didn't. They did not win. God's promise to Joseph's descendants that we read earlier that he would intervene for them in various ways, including militarily, has been kept. Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, in a speech before the United States Congress in December of 1941, said, quote, I will say that he must indeed have a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants 
End quote. And indeed, God's purpose is being worked out. And at that time, our nations were favored by God because of the promises made long ago. If we want God's continued favor, however, we must be faithful to Him. Joshua told the Israelites after they had taken possession of the land God had promised them as an inheritance. We read it in Joshua 23 beginning with verse 9. Joshua 23 and verse 9, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. So here, in ancient times as well, God was fighting against the enemies of the people of Israel and giving them the victory. Joshua went on to say, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until He has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which He has given you. End quote. But even if God allows His people to be defeated in future wars, which He will do, as Joshua prophesied, and there are many other prophecies along the same lines in the Bible, even if God allows the descendants of Joseph and the people of Israel to be defeated in future wars, He will not utterly forsake them. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 29. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 29. God said, Oh, that they were wise. Speaking of people of Israel. That they understood this. That they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? Speaking of the punishment that would afflict Israel if they walked in disobedience to his laws. Going on in verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, 
says the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free, he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I will raise my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword, my hand takes hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh when the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Now, as Christians, our war is a spiritual war. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And just as God can intervene and has intervened in the wars of the physical peoples of Israel and other nations from time to time. God can help us fight our battles and win. God has shown that He can work miracles to deliver His people and save them. And when the time comes, He will deliver the remnant of mankind from destruction War will be abolished and the earth will be at peace. 